Moncrief on News Talk. Now, if I say the word transgender, I can already feel the bristles of irritation. And for various reasons, those who believe there's no such thing as being trans and those who believe that trans people are fighting for their very existence. But we're not going to discuss that today, or at least that aspect of it, but have a look at the treatment available for people who might identify to a gender different from the one they were born into and exactly how that works. Dr. Carl Neff is clinical lead of the Irish National Gender Service. Carl, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, could you start by describing the process right from the start? When, when somebody gets a, a referral, would that generally be from their GP? Yes, so it has to be a referral from a medical doctor. So somebody registered with the Irish Medical Council. For the vast majority of people, 80, 90% of people, that's their GP. Right, OK. And, th- and then after that, do they go to see you straight away or are they told you're on a list now? They're told they're on a list. So what happens when we receive the referral is that we get back in touch with the referrer and also the person themselves if they're 18 or older. So we only see people from the age of 18, but we accept referrals from the age of 17. So if you're 17 and you've been referred, we won't send the referral letter to you. We'll send it to your referrer. But if it comes to us from the age of 18 plus, then you get a copy of the letter as well, which just basically says we've received your referral. You're on the waiting list as of this date. Yeah. OK. So so for people who might be younger than 18, have they nowhere to go? Or, or, or Unfortunately, at the moment, they don't. Yeah. So in Ireland, there is no service at all for anybody under the age of 18. So yeah. there used to be a service in Crumlin. Uh, which my and my understanding it's a separate service to ours. My understanding is that they haven't been accepting referrals for a number of years now, and that remains the case. Mm. Um, so at the moment, yeah, yeah, people under eighteen don't have a service in Ireland. And 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 of course, all of this is a matter of controversy. But one element in the, in in the proposed gender recognition bill is that perhaps sixteen-year-olds could self-identify. If that came into law, then would you be? in a position to accommodate 16-year-olds? No. So our issue in terms of age comes down to medical practice and regulation of clinical practice. So depending on the discipline, some clinical disciplines, myself, for example, included, I'm not licensed to work with children or young people under the age of 16, at least, uh, but depends on the setting and depends on the doctor uh, because I'm not trained in paediatric medicine. I'm trained in adult medicine. Mm. So that's why we have age limits. Now, in saying that, we're very strong advocates for the provision of a service for younger people. We think there should be a service for people irrespective of age. And we've proposed that to the HSE for the last two or three years now. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. We hope that it will. But at the moment, there is no service for people under the age of 18. I think there should be. Um, but that would need to be done very well with a very good clinical framework staffed by a highly skilled multidisciplinary team very much in line with the CAS review I'm not sure if you're familiar with that Mm. review but the CAS review which is due to publish its final report by the end of this year we think in the National Gender Service that would be the template for any future service in Ireland for younger people Yeah okay so for someone who's 17 or or, or 18 or, or older obviously um, you get back to the referrer and then the waiting time is, are we talking three years, three at and a half years? At the moment it's between three and three and a half years. Unfortunately, that is likely to get worse before it gets better. We do have a website, nationalgenderserviceireland.com and we update waiting times on that website every quarter. So you can check there to get an idea of what the waiting times are at the moment. But at the moment we're seeing people that were referred in the first quarter of 2020. So just over mm. three years ago. Uh, that will get worse because we have been asking for the last three years now for additional resources. This was foreseen to get worse when I started in 2019 and we did advise the HSC, our senior management teams, that we needed extra resource and we asked for that. We formally applied for the posts that we would need. To date, we haven't 
being given those resources. Yeah. So unfortunately, it will get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Do you anticipate getting those resources? That's an excellent question. I'm hopeful because otherwise I wouldn't be in the job, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. You have to be optimistic to keep going. Um, we are hopeful. And I think by the end of this year, we'll have to make a big decision because really, if we don't get additional resources by the end of this year, then it gets to a point of safety. You know, we have people waiting for, at that stage, it could be even more than four years. Uh, people with a lot of clinical needs. It's not just about gender. There's a lot of things going on. A lot of people who are deferring important clinical interventions. Uh, a lot of people who could end up harmed by long waits. Mm. And so we will maybe have to come to a decision to close the waiting list at that point purely as a matter of safety, but also as a matter of providing a service for the people who are already attending. So we have about 1,400 people on the waiting list at the moment. We have over 600, nearly 700 people attending us on at least an annual basis for clinical review on hormones going forward to have surgery and our assessment pathways and so on. Uh, and those people need a service too. So I think it will get to a crunch point where if the pressure gets too high, wait times get too long, and there is no sign that the HSE will you know, grant our request for additional resources, then the service may come apart. So for both clinical safety reasons, but also service provision and maintaining the service we already provide, we might come to that difficult decision to close the waiting list by the end of this year. Uh, now, uh, and, but for the, for the people who are waiting in the meantime, I did come across a, a, a group of uh, trans people of an Instagram account who are saying that, that your service is advising GPs not to give prescriptions for hormones. Is that is that the case? Uh, I'm not sure what that might be referring to. There's, so in terms of prescribing hormones, we would never, ever recommend prescription of hormones or referring for gender-affirming surgery in the absence of a comprehensive assessment. So I think the biggest thing that people misunderstand about trans healthcare, it's all about gender or gender dysphoria. So for example, our assessment process is not about telling you if you have gender dysphoria or not. It's not about telling you if you're trans or not. It's about balancing up the risks and benefits of the intervention. So like any medical or surgical intervention, we do this in obesity as well. So in obesity that I also practice in, we have a multidisciplinary assessment at the start of that pathway, including a mandatory psychological assessment. And the purpose of that is not to say, do you have obesity or not? Because you can tell that by a scales and a uh, you know, mm, measure yeah. of, your, of your height. It's to say on the balance of benefit and risk, is this procedure likely to result in benefit or harm? If we think it will result in benefit, we recommend it. If we think it will result in harm, we do not. Exactly the same in gender. Multidisciplinary assessment, thinking of all the different facets of a person's health and well-being and function. So global health, as we call it, or holistic uh, assessment. And if we think the benefits outweigh the risks, we recommend proceeding and risks outweigh the benefits we do not. At that moment in time, understand mm. that that might change in the future. Um, so that's the most confusing thing, I think, for people. It's that it's all about gender dysphoria. If I have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, that's the point of the assessment. It is not. That said, I think um, when it comes to recommending treatment, if the person we feel would likely benefit, we will prescribe hormone therapy. And ultimately, that person will be taken over by their GP. So people don't come back to us for the rest of their lives for prescriptions. By the time they're at a clinically stable place and things are going OK and they feel safe and happy and their care can be managed safely in primary care. We discharge them to the GP. Uh, what you might be referring to is this idea that um, GPs should prescribe hormones in the absence mm. of an MDT assessment or a multidisciplinary assessment or in, you know, because people have sourced things online or gone through online services. That really is a matter for the GP to decide. But if GPs ask us, we will always be honest and say we would not recommend 
treatment in the absence of an assessment, just like I've described. Because you're saying also, a GP isn't in a position to give that kind of an assessment. They're not going to have an MDT around them. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to have a full team. And it's more complex than just gender and gender dysphoria. The other big thing that comes up a lot with online prescriptions and people sourcing services outside of the country is that there are compliance issues. The medical council are very clear that if somebody prescribing therapy for somebody who's an Irish resident or living in Ireland is not registered to practice medicine in Ireland, that prescription should, you know, there's a compliance issue. Let's say mm-hmm. that. And the Medical Council guidelines can be looked at in terms of telehealth and what is expected. But it's expected that people should be registered in this country. We do get queries from GPs all the time about what can I do here? What we do is we give them the best clinical advice possible and that we give them honest advice, which may be we wouldn't recommend prescribing hormones in the absence of the things I've just mentioned, and the GP may not have access to those yeah. those things. So, so and, and correct me if I'm understanding you right, you're not kind of in the business of saying you've got gender dysphoria. You're in the business of saying, well, the treatment for gender dysphoria, is, is this a good idea in each individual case or not? Yeah, and even that question about the treatment for gender dysphoria, I mean, historically, that's where gender-affirming care arose from, is this idea that people have a condition called gender dysphoria, and that it requires treatment. But having gender dysphoria and being trans are two completely separate things. They're different things. So a lot of trans people would say they don't have gender dysphoria. A lot of people with gender dysphoria would say that they're not trans. So they are separate things. Mm. Um, The original concept of gender-affirming care was that gender dysphoria is a condition that can be diagnosed and can be treated. And therefore, you should offer treatment to to, to manage that condition. Our point of view is a bit broader than that. So we would say that if people come to us whose gender identity, their gender, um, as they understand it themselves, is clear and stable. uh, And there are clear benefits to proceeding with treatment. The degree of dysphoria or the type of dysphoria they have isn't as important as the likelihood that the intervention will result in benefit rather than harm. So if you had to boil down our assessment to a single question, which, you know, is extremely reductive. Yes. It's not, are you trans or not? It's, are you ready or not for this intervention? Right. Or is this intervention more likely to cause benefit than harm? That yeah. would be the question. And do you do you often decide, actually, it might be more, do more harm than good? Yes. So at this moment in time, we, will, we never say never. So if we meet somebody and we think that at that moment in time, that they're unlikely to result, it's unlikely to result in benefit and there is likely harm, we will say not right now. So we Mm. never say never because as I said, things can change. So a person that you might meet this year where there's a lot of different things going on, there's lots of high risk um, factors in place, those can often be ameliorated or addressed and you might see the person next year and actually things are much more different Mm. and they would be in a position where we would recommend intervention. So it's a never, we never say never, but we often say not right now. Yeah, okay. So the the actual assessment, as as you've already kind of implied a bit there, this is a huge team of people and you're looking at a vast range of subjects. So could you give us an idea what kinds of things you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a whole team of people now, I say vast, there's fewer than 20 of us. And as I said, we've got 2,000 people (laughs) on our books. But um, we do have a range of disciplines. There's myself, I'm an endocrinologist or a medical doctor that specialises in uh, hormone care. Uh, We have psychologists, we have occupational therapists, social worker, uh, speech and language therapists, psychiatrists, specialist nursing, uh, both in surgery, medical uh, care, but also in mental health. And that's our team. So when we meet people for assessments, and again, there's an outline of our assessments on our website, nationalgendersserviceireland.com, where we break it down into very simple language. But essentially the first, if I meet somebody for initial assessments, it's about three hours in total that first day. Uh, We take a break in the middle and 
by the time of the break, what will have asked the person will be really about their general life in, in from the time they were born to now, in terms of how life was in general. So how their social function has been throughout their life, any health issues they've encountered during their life. Um, we'll talk about uh, a wide range of so what we call social and occupational functioning, which is how are you able to engage in the world around you? Are you, first of all, able to leave the house comfortably? Uh, if you are, when you leave the house, what kind of things can you do or can you not do? Mm. Um, if you're working or in college and, and, and so on, how, how are those things going? We asked the life story history to see that if the person has struggles now or challenges now, has that always been the case? Or is this something that's developed more recently? Um, or is there a context in the past to explain why the person might be struggling in certain domains now when they weren't previously? Uh, then we also ask specifically after the break then, um, the way I do it, I would normally ask things more specifically about health. So physical health issues, which is usually very, very brief because we have a very young cohort. Uh, mental health issues, which can be a bit longer depending on the person. So most people attending us will have had some engagement with mental health services for some reason over the years. So we ask a lot about that. And then we ask about psychosexual health and development. Um, psychosexual health and development is one of the very controversial things. People mm. say, well, why should you be asking about sex? But of course, we're talking about sex steroids. These are the hormones we're talking about, testosterone, estrogen. They have a direct impact on sexual function, on fertility. So it's really important for us to know, first of all, where the person's sexuality is at in terms of development. What we encounter a lot in our assessments is that people, their sexuality hasn't really woken up yet. So they may not have any sexual interest or attraction. And so you're intervening now at a time in their life where you could be making changes to their sexual function that lasts forever. So we want to know where the person's at in terms of their sexual development, how they're functioning now, how they would like to function in the future. And we also ask as well about how their sexuality will interact with their gender, because even though sexuality and gender are completely separate things, they, of course, do interact. So understanding that interaction would be important too. Uh, and then finally, after all of that is done, then we talk about gender. So when I start my assessment process, with somebody the first time I meet them, I tell them that at the start, the most confusing thing about today is that most of it has nothing to do with your gender. About 80% is nothing to do with gender. And at the end, uh, so about 20% of the time is based on and uh, focused on your gender. Mm. And the gender development piece is really just about how the person understands their own gender, how that development of gender has occurred over time. Uh, we talk about dysphoria, if dysphoria is present, what kind of dysphoria is there and how it's affecting uh, the person at this stage of their lives, but how it has affected them previously. And then their goals in terms of affirming their gender uh, in the future. And as part of that, we ask a lot, uh, we probably spend most of our time asking a lot about the social transition, which is how the person's gender is seen in the world. Because gender really is a very nebulous thing. You know, it's a very difficult to define thing, um, but it's best understood in a social context so that uh, when people meet each other and look at each other, they see facial hair or not, or certain clothing or not, or hairstyles or not, that le leads them to deduce this person is masculine or feminine or neither or both or and yeah. so on. So we ask a lot about social transition and we would expect that people will have it before we'd recommend intervention like hormones or surgery, that the person will have had some degree of social transition that's well established uh, in the life that they lead and in the world around them. Yeah, okay. And and if they haven't done that, there's a, I, I imagine there's a body of work to be done there preparing them for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Because that's not an easy transition it's to make. It's really not. It can be very scary depending on your social context, depending where you you, you know, you live and what kind of social supports you have. So that would be work that our social worker and our occupational therapist could do a lot of um, good in so they can help a lot of people with social transition if they're at the right step and ready for that piece. Uh, we offer family therapy. So a lot of the people attending our service are reliant on other people for fundamental needs like housing, income and so on. And for them to tell the family that they're reliant on their fundamental needs for actually, I want you to use a different name or, or see me differently um, it can be difficult. So we do offer family therapy to help in that 
situation. So there's a lot of things we can do if people are stuck in their social transition. Uh, we either refer them locally for local supports if that's most appropriate or if it's most appropriate that we would take care of them, we would do that within the team. I read that a very high proportion of people who arrive into you have had some sort of mental health issue, particularly people on the autism spectrum. And that's surprisingly high. Yes, it is um higher than the reference population. So if you took um, a a measurement of of autism in our population, people attending us, it would be much higher than, say, the background population or the cisgender population. Uh, But that has only really been the case in the last 10 years. So the last time we properly looked at these numbers, or first looked at these numbers, was about 10 years ago. Mm. And at that stage, about 3% of people um, were were known to be autistic or identified themselves as autistic. Uh, the last time we did a proper full year check was 2019. At that stage, it was 34% of people were neurodiverse. Now, neurodiversity is kind of the new, some of the new language you use to describe autism. It can include ADHD, for example, and, and, and other conditions such as that. Um, so about one in three people. We think at the moment it's more. So we're doing an audit of last year's um, as service uh, activity. Mm. They were nearly finished. Uh, and it's, it's more than half, I would say. So autism, it, but not, we wouldn't consider autism a mental health condition, actually. Uh, it's important to identify. The reason for that is that it can sometimes result in mental health symptoms that can sometimes be treated, for example, like anxiety or depression, as primary problems. So people might go to their GP or their mental health service with anxiety and they're treated with medications or you know cognitive behavioural therapy or things that aren't going to work for them because they're autistic. So it's really important to identify neurodiversity because otherwise you're going to be treating mental health symptoms uh, with things that will not work for that person. Yes, yeah. And by using an autism-friendly intervention, you'll have a much better outcome uh, in terms of, of the mental health symptoms. But yes, most people would have mental health symptoms like anxiety, depression. It's usually fairly low-grade stuff, to be honest. So the very scary stuff like schizophrenia or suicidality or suicide attempts are very, very uncommon. Yeah. Um, yeah and, but is there a link? Obviously, that's that's an obvious question to ask between these things. Between autism and being trans? Yeah. yeah so you, a lot or, or between just, yeah, between, between being neurodiverse or having a mental health issue and being trans. Yeah, I think, well, there, yeah, it's probably not one big Venn diagram, so there's probably separate things there. I think in terms of mental health and um, autism, yes, neurodiversity, I think, in mental health. And I think there's a huge need, we've definitely re- recognised in our service, for some adult autism services that just don't exist. A lot of people with autism or who are autistic uh, are presenting to mental health services with these symptoms and are getting treatments that are not working. And then they're stuck in a mental health system for years, not getting any better and wondering why. And it's because nobody's actually delivering autism-friendly interventions like occupational therapy, for example, um, exposure therapies, things that will really help alleviate those symptoms. So there's definitely an overlap there that I think is desperately needs to be addressed. And there's a huge demand, I think, for yeah. an adult autism service. Um, the overlap between autism and, and gender is clearly there. It's not just in Ireland. Any gender service that looks at neurodiversity finds a similar kind of proportion of of the service users are autistic. People often think that you're either autistic or trans, but that's not the case. If anybody comes to any of our clinics, they'll see that's not the case. So we have a lot of trans people who are autistic. Uh, So you can be both. Mm. But uh, the reason there's a big correlation is just not known, to be honest. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I suppose while we're on the subject as well, <laughs> before we get back to the uh, after the assessment thing, that it, it over the years, as I understand it too, it has changed in in the makeup of how people are self-identifying. It used to be people who self-identified mostly as female, but that's flipped over. Yeah, so there's been two big demographic, there's many demographic shifts, but specifically to gender, there's been two. One is that the majority of people we used to see uh, were male at birth and ultimately identified as binary uh, gendered uh, women, so trans women. 
And that has changed in two ways. One is that it's just a little bit more now. It's not as dramatic as in some services where it's, you know, two thirds or three quarters of people are female at birth. In ours, it's about, you know, 55, 60% of people attending are female at birth. Um, but the other big demographic shift has been the gender identity. So nowadays, a lot of people are non-binary or gender diverse or would use other terms like agendered to describe themselves. Uh, those terms for us are important, as, as important to us as they are to the person. So if the person finds them important, we use them. Some people don't even like using the word transgender to uh, use to describe themselves. Um, so we use whatever language the person uses. From our point of view, it's not really that important if a person is uh, but you know what words the person used to describe their gender just that their gender identity is, is clear and mm. stable and that the no, I assume if they've arrived up to you they want something to change yeah but the, the things that people are looking for now also are different so previously it was very much a case that people would be seeking hormones mm. universally that's no longer the case we have a, a rising number of people 5 to 10% these days of people who are presenting saying I never want to touch a hormone that's okay. not for me but I do want surgery and most often that group they're looking for chest surgery mastectomy in particular um, so there's a rising group of people or oh, sorry growing number of people who are presenting not for medical treatment but for surgical interventions or, or also a group of people who are looking for something else that you know they kind of work out in time mm. um, surgery likewise has become less uh, commonly sought so nowadays a small minority of, of women and a tiny minority of men so you know fewer than 10% will ever get any genital surgery uh, and chest surgery is still at least 50-50 in trans men, so people assigned female at birth um, and trans-masculine people, um, but much lower in, in trans women or trans-feminine people. Mm. Yeah. Are hormones reversible in that if you start a course, have you embarked on a road you can't really go back from if at some point in the future you regret the decision? Uh, if you decide to stop hormones, some things are reversible, but most things are not. So it depends on the hormone. So testosterone, for example, if you take testosterone, you will get deepening of the voice. That's because your vocal cords get thicker. That's irreversible. So no matter if, and that happens quite quickly. That happens within two or three months. So at that stage, once your voice is broken, it's broken. It's not going to go mm. back. Um, hair growth will also um, change. So if you start growing a beard, for example, and you stop testosterone, your beard will not grow as quickly, but it will still grow. And if you've lost any hair on your scalp, like you and I, um, then you will not grow that back, that it's gone. And the other permanent change for people on testosterone is the clitoral change. So the genitals do change with testosterone. Um, there's some vaginal, like internal changes that can go back to normal. Um, or back to where they started, but there's also clitoral changes that do not. So the clitoris will get bigger and longer, and that is a permanent change as well. Uh, for people on oestrogen, the changes that are not reversible are the breast development mainly. Um, there are other changes that uh, are subtle, skin changes and so on, but they are usually fully reversible. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, y y y how long does the assessment process go on for? Uh, it's individualised to the person. The, the, the shortest amount of time would be a two to three month kind of period where you'd have two visits over that period of time. So if the person has absolutely no major clinical issues and everything is, you know, very straightforward in the sense that we have met a person, we have all their records, we are ready to go ahead, we might meet them this month um, and then see them next month or the month after and then they start hormones with us the month after that. So it can be a very tight schedule at the start. 
Uh, but for most people, there will be stuff going on, either stuff that needs clinical intervention uh, or they might have attended other services. We need the clinical records, for example, and there might be things that make it a longer process. And some people will come back from multiple assessments over a year or two, sometimes mm. even three years, uh, depending on their complexity of need and depending on how close or not they are to starting interventions. So if we meet people who are, you know, probably a couple of years away from being ready, clinically speaking, uh, to start hormones, then we won't see them for five years. But if they're almost there, we might see them on a regular basis for two or even three years in the assessment pathway. Right, OK. Have you, uh, has uh, our gender service had any links with the Tavistock or is that completely... Our own now. service, the National Gender Service, yeah. is not. The Crumlin Service did. Yeah, um, that right. ended in 2020 after a judicial, a judicial review um, process over there. And given the CAS review um, that subsequently was commissioned, I would, the Tavistock is closing, as you may or may not mm. know. So the Tavistock will no longer be in operation by the end of this year, it's anticipated. Uh, and there will be different services involved um, in the NHS and what the Irish services links to that will be, we don't know. We have actually met with Hilary Cass, who, who's um, writing the Cass Review and, and leading up in that. Uh, and we would have an ambition to uh, liaise with the UK services in terms of future research, because one of our biggest problems in gender is that we just don't have an evidence base of any equality. Uh, and that's because historically there were very few people attending for gender affirming care. Um, so there was just very little opportunity to actually perform any kind of research. Whereas now we have a lot more opportunity, but people aren't doing it, at least not in a very robust way or in a good quality uh, yeah, way. Yeah. But uh, uh, Dr. Cass does want to do that. So we'd like to link with her, um, you know, her group, but also the emergent services to really start putting together some proper research and get good quality data because that's really the biggest deficit we have in clinical practice at the moment so we're working in an evidence-free yeah. zone in many respects. Uh, yeah, because I've heard the, I heard the phrase the culture is moving faster than the science. Is that, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the data that we have for any clinical intervention, you always want to have a good evidence base. It's not absolutely essential, but it's very reassuring if you do have a good quality evidence base. We don't have that in gender. Mm. Uh, and that the, the quality of the evidence base doesn't mean what people often hear when they hear that is, oh, that means low quality means don't do it or it's bad or the low quality means you can't make any judgment of whether the intervention is good, bad or indifferent. That's what that means. So not having a high quality evidence base does not mean you should not be providing gender services or gender affirming care. What it does mean is that you have to use a much more robust clinical framework to make sure you're more likely to produce benefit than harm. Uh, the so you'd be more cautious in the lack of a lot of research. You should be. Yeah. yeah, you absolutely should be because you just don't know what the outcomes are going to be. Mm. Um, now, the reason that there's poor evidence base is because uh, people aren't doing the research and that needs to be done. But also when the research is done, there's high dropout rates from the studies. So usually the research is a kind of a lower quality design, which is longitudinal studies or cohort studies, where you just find a, a service see a group of people this year and try and follow them up in five years. But in most studies, you might have a 25, 30 percent plus dropout rate, which kind of nullifies any effects that you do observe over that time. So there needs to be a higher quality um, evidence base and that needs to be done within kind of NHS structures, within a very rigid um, clinical system where you really make sure you collect all the data as best you can. Mm. The evidence that we do have now as well, which kind of goes back to our point about demographics, we do have some studies, some longitudinal studies, but they were from 10 years or more ago. And as you say, the culture has moved faster than the science in the sense that people attending now compared to people 10 years ago, big, big differences, clinically speaking. Big differences yeah. in age and clinical characteristics and clinical needs. So the evidence base that we do have doesn't really uh, serve the people attending services these days. So, so say in your experience, Carl, do many people regret it? 
do you get people coming back saying I wish I hadn't done this? Um, you do get some and every service will say that there are people coming back and it's the, the regret part is different in the sense that people hear the word regret and they think of different things. So there's there are definitely people who uh, go through the intervention and they regret it for broadly speaking two reasons. One is that they later on identify or they've reevaluated their gender. They mm. identify as they identified as male for a while now they identify as female but now they're struggling with say a deep voice and uh, you know scalp hair loss and and, uh, and facial hair and that's very distressing. So they're very very distressed. Uh, you'll get another group of people who regret it not because their gender has changed but because they thought this was going to be the thing that was going to solve one problem or many 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 problems in their lives and it didn't. Uh, so you can, some people call that secondary regret, which is that it's not about their gender. And that would be much more common in our experience. So we yeah. don't have a lot of people in the first category. We do. And we've, I've seen people in the last you know, couple of months, you know, we see a number of people every year. That's always going to be the case. But the larger group of people are the people that we meet who thought this was going to be the thing that was going to make something click, not gender wise, but something else or something happen in their life that it didn't. And that's distressing because it can make them feel very hopeless and and. Mm. and, and really affects them uh, in a very in a very specific way because it, there's a narrative trap in gender which is that the hormones are supposed to make everything better or the surgery will make everything better. So if it doesn't, you feel very alone because you don't want to tell the healthcare providers because you're afraid that we'll tell you we told you so, which we would never do. Um, but people fear that. And there's also a fear that you can't tell your peers or, the, or your family because you brought them down this path and now they're saying, well, this is what you wanted and why aren't you happy? So there can be, it can be a desperately lonely place. And secondary regret is definitely much more common in our experience than, than what people might yeah. usually consider to be regret. Yeah. And those it, things are also, by the way, completely different from detransition, which is a completely separate thing. A lot of people detransition and they're not distressed at all. You know, this is just a reevaluation of their gender and they've, you know, retransitioned, some people like to say, rather than detransition, because detransition is considered to be a very negative thing. For some people, it's part of a primary regret thing. Mm. For some people, it's just a new understanding of gender and yeah. it doesn't cause distress. And, and of all those those three cohorts, is, are we talking a significant proportion of people? Um, not that we know of. Now, we do have a high non-attendance rate. So, you know, yeah. in our clinics, we have 25, 30%. So we can't ever say definitively because we don't know what happens to the people that we don't oh, see. Oh, gosh, yeah, okay. So, but I would say it's not very high. What I would say, though, is that we're kind of fairly... It's kind of early enough in our own experience. I mean, the service in Lachlanstown has been there for about 20 years, um, but it's only been the National Gender Service for the last four years or so. And over that time, um, the people that are seen, that we're seeing now, we won't really know what the outcomes will be for another maybe five years or more because when you do see people who kind of have an outcome of regret or they feel that the, the intervention is not being of value to them, it only usually comes to light in the five to 10 year window because that's the time where you've had all the hormones, the changes you're going to expect from hormones have happened um, or you've had the surgeries that you can access and you're left with yourself and your and your life. Yeah. And that's where people really start to judge for themselves. Um, did this bring me more, uh, you know, good than bad? And that's where you likely see where things are going. Um, we think with our assessment model that we're ident- identifying the people who are at risk, not of, you know, you know, the gender regret, but of general regret a bit better, but we just don't know. So it'll be another five or 10 years before we'll be able to really comment on, on the kind of percentage or the prevalence of those kind of outcomes. Yeah. The the, the intention seems to be that um, our, that, that, that Lachlan standard, the National Gender Service, will be completely self-reliant, will cater to everyone's needs. Are we anywhere close to doing that? 
we could be the desperately sad thing about I'm it. I'm hearing is that, no there, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that the, the amount of staff we would need to actually deliver a service that could meet people's needs and see them within a matter of months instead of years. We're talking like a half dozen clinical staff, a few more admin staff and a clinical space. So the answer is yes. Now that's for adults. I think for the younger Mm. person um, group, you would need a model of care and, and that's something that needs to be defined and that needs to be resourced. But I think the answer is yes, with very little investments. The problem is the HSC senior management team are not providing that investment despite continuous requests and we remain in continuous contact with them and continue to bang on that door. Uh, But it is possible, yes. I mean, we get about 400 to 500 referrals a year. And with the team that we already have, you know, we are not quite meeting half that demand. But I think with some additional, does few additional staff would make a big, big difference. So I think it's possible. Mm -hmm. Because again, remembering we don't do everything in Lachlanstown. We liaise a lot with local services. So when we meet people for the first assessment, we, as much as possible, try to link them in with local services who can deliver the clinical intervention needed. And as I said, also ultimately, we discharge people back to primary care anyway. So we really only need to hold people for a couple of years in most cases before they go back to primary care. So a small uplift in investment would make a gigantic difference to waiting times and service provision. Yeah. Given that though there are in Lachlan Sound, do you ever get protests outside your gates or anything? Of no, that nothing nature? like that. No, we get we get letters and emails and phone calls from people of the both ends of the ideological spectrum who say that we shouldn't have a service at all, but also much more commonly, actually, people who say that we're uh, bad people because we don't provide a service in a way that you know certain activist groups would like. So, a lot of people have different points of view on how clinical care should be provided, which is entirely their right. Uh, we work within a clinical framework and we act in the best interests of our service users and patients and that's how we'll always you know, work. Um, so we do get very, very few. I do always like to say that 90% or more of the time that we meet people in the service, either when they call us for something or we see them in clinic, it's a really positive, uh, enjoyable interaction. We really like seeing people coming in. Um, we enjoy seeing people in clinical interactions the vast majority of of the time because I think that sometimes the, the narrative around trans healthcare gets so negative often people who come to visit the, the clinic uh, clinical observers other clinicians um, I kind of warn them like you're not going to see furniture thrown through windows here you know people think the place is going to be in, in flames when they arrive and actually they're shocked to see how nice a place it is to work and how positive the clinical interactions are but of course online and other forums we'll have people who you know have a political or ideological perspective that they want to express and they can express that Um, But no, we've never had a protest outside the door. Dr. Carl Neff is a consultant endocrinologist and clinical lead at the National Gender Service. Carl, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.